Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for tuning in to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. This show is intended for anyone interested in cultured meat and future food technologies. Most people learn about podcasts from their friends. So please, share the link with any friends or colleagues that you think might find this interesting. We're excited to have Lisa Feria from Stray Dog Capital as the guest for today's episode. Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. We are excited to have Lisa Feria as the guest for today's episode. Lisa Feria is the CEO of Stray Dog Capital, a mission-driven venture capital firm that invests in early-stage, mission-driven companies that aim to take animals out of the supply chain. She is a seasoned business manager with over 15 years of experience running organizations and businesses. Lisa has always been heavily involved in the community as a volunteer for SPCA and the United Way, and was the recipient of one of the two Arts Wave Awards given by the Procter & Gamble CEO. Lisa is currently a board member of Encompass and the Great Plains SPCA. Lisa enjoys a plant-based diet and lives in Kansas City with her husband, two boys, and many dogs. Lisa, I would like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and speak with you today. Lisa, tell us a little bit about Stray Dog Capital and overall investment strategy. Stray Dog Capital is a venture capital firm. We're located in Kansas City, and our investment thesis is focused on taking animals out of the supply chain by investing in early-stage startups that are doing fantastic work and producing products and services that will replace animals. What are some of the other VC firms that are in a similar space, if any, either partners of Stray Dog Capital or even competitors? So about two and a half years ago, because there weren't that many firms that were doing what we were doing, and at that point, uh, we were not taking additional capital in, we created Glasswell Syndicate. And the Glasswell Syndicate is an investor-based community. It's a nonprofit that aimed to collaborate with other investors who are interested in investing in the space and meant to aggregate them so we can do due diligence on companies together and, and really form a community. And so we have over 100 members there. We co-invest with the Glasswell Syndicate members uh, all the time. So, for example, New Crop Capital is a trust. Veg Invest, we co-invest with them. Belain and Bjorn, Plant Power Ventures. Uh, so, there are many other firms that are either trust or foundations or venture capital firms that we co-invest with all the time. In addition, more typical venture capital firms are also starting to get into the field and starting to realize that this is a very interesting space to invest in from a growth potential standpoint as well as 
from a return on investment. And then finally, we have some strategics that are coming into the market. For example, um, Tyson Foods has opened up their own venture arm. Cargill has invested in some clean meat companies. So we have some other strategics that are also getting in in the investment uh, community. For the entrepreneurs in the audience, tell us about what you really look for when you're looking to make an investment in a founding team. So many times when we invest, the founding team is what we have because the team usually has no product. They have a lot of ideas and great plans and scientific strategies, but they don't really have anything to show for because we invest very early stage, sometimes even pre-revenue, many times pre-revenue. And so getting a good understanding about the different elements within the team, how the team gets along and who's doing what is very critical to us. So we look for a team that's nicely balanced. We highly prefer co-founders more than one person usually whenever you have a person and that's not all the time sometimes you have a a single founder who has it all most likely you'll have co-founders who have a different set of experiences and each one will drive their the growth in the company in a very different way and so when I evaluate a company I look at the co-founders and I make sure that their backgrounds are complementary to each other they're going to build on each other they have some areas of adjacency but what they have more is if you think about these concentric circles. They have very different areas of expertise and then some area of collaboration there or or, uh, similarities. And if there's more than two co-founders, even better because they usually tend to be very different in what they bring to the table. So differences in backgrounds and experiences, passion, so incredibly important. I've made investments. We made investments in the past because we have seen that this team will make it happen no matter what. That's always, sometimes people call it hustle, but just passion where you're going to have obstacles. There, there's no doubt, not even even in the, in the companies that you see in the news that are having, you know, multi-billion dollar valuations, those companies at some point where it was dicey if they were going to make it or not. Every entrepreneur, every company goes through a period or more than one period where things are not working out. You got delisted from a company, the product timeline got pushed off. And so you will have obstacles and having somebody or a group of co-founders with a ton of passion to make it happen is incredibly critical because they will have a lot of difficulties at some point. See, I would say interrelational relationships between the founders, you know, working in such a high stress, difficult environment like a startup, you're going to have issues, you're going to have disagreements and having a team that either has worked together or has a very clear path on how to solve disagreements that will make sure that their relationship is kept healthy and productive and constructive and have and identify they need to work on that and they need to evolve that. That's really important. That's very mature. Usually the most sophisticated teams will say, okay, here's how we're going to react if we have a disagreement. Here's what we're going to do. If it's important to one, you know, incredibly important, here's who we're going to bring in to help us think through it. You know, they have already thought through those paths and those pipelines and those things collaborate together to help them be very sturdy as a company in the long term. Having fantastic ideas is very important. You need to have somebody who is a great executor, can handle uh, the execution of those ideas. And then you need to make sure that those relationships work with each other well. And if they don't, that they have a path to solving issues. As a follow-up to that, you know, we, we've been hearing more and more that entrepreneurs are creating companies without the business plan. How important is it for your team that an entrepreneur comes to you with a solid business plan written out? I love business plans. And the reason I love business plans is because business plans help you think. It's less about the capital sourcing element of it. It's less about, here's my 
check in the box, venture capitalist, uh, evaluate my business plan. It's because the people who have gone through the due diligence and the detail-oriented nature of having to think through all the elements of the business plan tend to have the, ki- the tires kicked uh, a lot better in their organizations and in their product strategy. Now, there is a reason some people have barely a business plan put together, and those are companies that are so incredibly early. There's so much uh, scientific and technical discovery that needs to happen that there is almost no way to figure out a business plan or do a, a, a typical business plan. I would still encourage any entrepreneur who's looking at an idea or a company or a service to go through the discipline of trying to put together a business plan because it will make you a more diligent thinker and it will make sure that you're thinking about all the little elements. So whenever I don't get full out, you know, 30 page business plans that often, but whenever I do get them, I'm very impressed because I know this team has really thought through all the details related to their business. What are some of the clean meat companies that Stray Dog has invested in? And what are some of the other companies that you see as leaders or incumbents in the space? Stray Dog Capital has invested in many clean meat companies, Memphis Meats uh, being the most um, known, well-known here in the United States. But we've also invested in Moza Meats, which is the Mark Post company. And he's the one that created the original $300,000 burger, <laughs> the original uh, clean meat or cultured burger. We've invested in his company as well. But we also have investments in a couple of Israeli companies called Super Meat and Aleph Farms who are uh, doing clean meat. And we are evaluating some clean fish or culture fish companies. So there's a a large group of companies, a number larger than 14, that are coming together into this market because there's not only the technology has caught up to where we need to get it to in order to get these things to actually become reality. And also there's a lot more venture support behind it. So companies and groups like Straight Out Capital have come into play and said, hey, we are willing to invest in in this type of company. We are willing to be the patient capital that this company needs to grow. In terms of the leaders that I see in the space, I think that clean meat companies, they're, what I like about the different investments that we made is that each company is doing clean products in a different way. They're approaching it with a slightly different angle or equipment or scientific pathline and that makes it really exciting because when you approach a problem with many different in many different directions and dimensions the likelihood that you're going to find a solution is significantly higher so we are thrilled about that but in terms of plant-based products i think beyond meat is no doubt one of the leaders in the field um, they've taken the whole eating experience and taking it to a higher level they've been very thoughtful about how does the product look and smell how does it uh, how does it change color and scent as you cook it what what does it taste like or what does it feel in your mouth when you bite into it? You know, that whole sensorial experience is such a human experience. It's such an important human experience. And they really have taken that to the next level. We have a lot of different companies who are also focusing on shorter ingredient decks. Nut Pots is a great example of that. And then we have companies, for example, Gelter, who is doing um, collagen and gelatin in the future. Uh, that doesn't come with all the issues that animal-based collagen and gelatin come with. And they are progressing through their different stages of technology development incredibly fast. So it's a very exciting category. It's All the products that we're going to see and are seeing already in the market, it just baffles the brain how quickly this has come to be and how quickly it will continue to grow. I mean, we're located in Kansas City and you would think, what do you eat? You're plant-based in Kansas City. You know, there's there's got to be nothing there. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I can go and eat a Beyond Burger at a Burger Five right next door. I can go eat an Impossible Burger at a local place downtown 
downtown here. Um, there's many different plant-based eating locations, restaurants. There's different plant-based bakeries here. I mean, just plant-based is not only in California, in the eco chamber of California. It really has permeated and will continue to permeate everywhere. Cool. And I know that the Kansas City barbecue is quite famous. So <laughs> maybe in the future we'll have clean Kansas City barbecue. You know we will. The lab-grown hamburger debuted by Dr. Post was back in 2013. What do you think has caused the sudden interest in clean meat startups now, such that organizations like Y Combinator are putting out a request to fund clean meat startups with their RFS or request for startups? There are many things that have happened since Dr. Post created the original burger back in 2013, the original clean meat or cultured meat burger, the famous $300,000 burger. There's a couple, well, I wouldn't say a couple. There's many things that have happened since then. So there's the environmental degradation of awareness that has just permeated our our psyche in terms of what, how much animal agriculture degrades the environment from a pollution standpoint, from a deforestation even standpoint, just water, just overall land usage is just not a good use of our resources. We expect to have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. We cannot feed 20 billion, 10 billion people with the way that we eat today. There's no way. And then you have developing countries now starting to eat more like the United States, which creates even more of a burden and more of an issue with pollution and um, degradation uh, because they're eating more uh, products that then are worse for the environment. So you have that piece. So you have the millennial generation, the largest cohort ever, ever, eating this way already. The millennial generation is three times as likely to eat vegetarian and vegan than the previous generation and 12 times as likely as the baby boomer generation. That's huge. You have a huge group of people who are already wanting to eat uh, in a way that is more consistent with their own principles and values, that it's more consistent with environmental reasons, etc. And then the third piece is from a technology standpoint, we've made great progress. And part of that is because of the medical field has made great progress with tissue generation and cell growth. Um, and so many of those technologies are now being used to drive clean and cultured products because other fields have advanced them to a point. Other much better funded fields have advanced them to a point where they can now be used for products like these. And you went from a 300 thousand dollar per pound or so to 2000 to over you know a couple hundred now um in the in the scale of within a year which is crazy to think about and so you have a lot of different companies that are capitalizing all these opportunities and realizing this is not a nice to have this is not an optional product that if we get to it it would be great this is something that we need to do. We physically cannot, this earth cannot sustain the amount of human beings we're going to have on it. We have to figure out a way to eat differently. And, you know, Straight Out Capital will continue investing in companies that are providing fantastic, healthy, plant-based products. But we also realize that there is a, a lot of tradition and culture associated with the consumption of meat. And so we are going to continue to work with these companies to bring this to market because it's, it's a mandate for all of us. We need to eat differently in order for us to be able to live uh, in this planet in the way that we do now. From a market integration standpoint, what do you see is really the biggest challenge to getting clean meat into the market? Is it perception and just the marketing in general, technology, mass production, or even taste? Like what, what really is it? 
I believe the challenge in getting claim into market will be scale because taste. A lot of people originally, when they when they hear about clean meat, many people say, "Well, this is going to be an issue. Nobody's going to want to eat it." And that's really not the case. There's been many surveys that have been done, and particularly millennials are very much open to trying products like these. And so, let me tell you a story. About two years ago, I went to a Future Food Tech conference in London, and there were a couple, maybe one or two, cricket flour-based companies, and I thought. It was interesting. Then I came back a year later, and there were at least ten and whole investor groups that are only investing in insect-based protein. And if you think about a, a yuck factor, where you think, well, consumers would never eat that; they will never eat a chip made out of cricket or, or larva or whatever. And that's actually not true. What we have seen is that this market is growing actually very fast. Uh, there's much more consumer uh, risk-loving, <laughs> or there's just that much more consumer appetite for trying out new things that potentially are, are marketed correctly to them. And so when I think about clean meat, I don't think that eventually our, the, the target consumers, which is really going to be mostly the, the millennial generation, not only the generation, but in terms of their first entry to trying out these products, early adopters are going to be the millennials. When I think about that, I think the challenge is going to be, is it going to be affordable enough? Are you going to be able to sell it at Walmart at a reasonable price? Are you going to be able to find it everywhere? And scale up is the underlying key and pin that will enable all that to happen. These companies still have a long way to figure out how to do this and mass scale. Ideally, at some point, you will have, just if you think about a brewery and you have all these brewing um, tanks and, and reactors that are making the beer, brewing the beer, you will have those, but of meat. So you will brew meat just like you brew beer today. And they need, it needs to brew at a level where it, the process is so cheap that, you know, it can be at the price of meat or un, even undercuts meat. But they have a, a really challenge, challenging assignment to be able to deliver something like that because it, it's, it's not known how to do it yet. They still have to go and figure it out. And actually, I just recently heard about uh, Chirp Chips, I think, and it's like that cricket flour-based chips and, and definitely a very interesting concept. Yeah, I actually was traveling in, and went through the, I want to say it was in New York airport and was in one of those little shops trying to get some food and saw one of these cricket flour companies just right next to the Lay's. Very little advertising that it was cricket flour. The only reason I, I knew the brand, that's how I knew about it, but it was not like, hey, this is insect you know, flour. You would pick it up just like you would pick up, hey, this is just a different type of chip. And they don't feel the need to tell the consumer very clearly what they are. And uh, clearly, if it's in, in these shops and has a lot of visibility, it's not doing that badly. For most tech companies, a laptop, computer, and a web server is really all you need to, to get started as, as a tech company. Uh, but when you're tackling the food industry, a lot more is needed. Do you think that this deters entrepreneurs from jumping into the food and science area and, and entrepreneurship? Even though clean products require a little bit more of a, of a scientific expertise, and I would say, you know, for your example, uh, tech companies, you still need people who A, have passion, and B, know how to hire people. 
Because that's really what you need. Initially, when you start up a team, when you start up a company, it's just you and your co-founder and you're trying to figure out, you know, here, I'm going to handle sales. You're going to handle all the scientific projects and products and, and the scientific plan. And they're very divided in terms of business and science. But what I've seen is that many times you'll have an experienced CEO who has no or very little science background, who is able to, through a co-founder or through hiring, get the right people in the in the boat to row in the right direction. So really, if you want to get into this field and you have a lot of passion for it and some expertise, it could be sales and marketing and business and finance, et cetera, um, and are able to either find a co-founder who has uh, other elements of the expertise that you don't have or get plugged into a university who is already doing, and students, PhD students usually, who are doing a Already some of this research and have this experience, or even better, serial entrepreneurs uh, that have been CSOs before, chief scientific officers, that then can help you bring the reality to life. Uh, having the, a very specific set of expertise isn't an end-all be-all. It's great to have, but what you really do need is an ability to partner with others and identify great talent and, and convince them uh, that your vision is worth leaving <laughs> their, you know, science, their uh, academia. You got to convince them that you're your vision is worth them leaving academia or another company in order to come and, and work for your brand and for your company. We often hear that really the best configuration for a founding startup uh, is a developer, designer, and hustler. But that's for tech, I think. You know, when it comes to science startups, what is that best configuration? Yeah, I think you have to have a business head usually, and that would be the person who really handles more of the fundraising and talking to venture capitalists, who handles the financial elements of the company, who works with the di distributor and sales and marketing and handles all that piece. And then you have um, a science person, a science geek who then handles the scientific development and progress and, and keeps the company moving forward and focused on what they're trying to achieve. Many times the 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 person, the co-founder who is a bit on the business side ends up doing a lot of branding for the company, speaking a lot of panels or going to meet investors or partners uh, elsewhere. And then the, the person in charge of more of the scientific progress and department then makes sure that everybody is focused on moving the progress, the product through the pipeline and make sure the, the product is progressing according to plan. How soon after or even before cultured meat hits the store shelves do you think that it'll be adopted by large chain and fast food restaurants? I think clean meat will be adapted by large chain and fast food restaurants almost immediately. As long as it's within reasonable price, within a reasonable price, I think it will have very easy and quick adoption. And here's why. What we've seen with the non-dairy market has been that it used to be that milk was a loss leader. Cow's milk, you know, they would lose all the kinds of money on it. They would price it accordingly to bring people into the store. What has happened in that category over time is that as non-dairy gains a lot of traction and as non-dairy gains a lot of market share and skew space, they have found, and, and they, I mean, large uh, retailers, they have found that they can make money with these products. They can charge maybe sometimes a little bit of a higher price or it, or not even necessarily high, charge a higher price, but they just have higher margins on them. And they've been able to make those a, a great, fantastic, pocket, increasing pocket of profit for the retailer, where instead of it having to eat the cost of this lost leader commodity, they can bring in the incumbent or they can bring in the new competitor and then have some great rewards associated with it. And if you think about the fast food uh, category, 
pottery in general, it's been a, a race to the bottom. It's like the $1 everything menu and, you know, how cheap can we make this? And I think there's a huge opportunity from a revenue standpoint to bring products that are so different that then can either command a better price or a better margin and bring so much differentiation and, and uniqueness to a category who's had tr- trouble growing over time. And so I think that it just brings such a, a an attractive product proposition that adoption in these larger re- retailers and fast food restaurants won't be uh, challenging. We have a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Florine from Germany asks, how did you get into entrepreneurship and what was your path to becoming a VC? Hi, Florine. That's a great question. My path was nonlinear. Uh, so I already I started by being a chemical engineer and I went into food very much, everything related to food. Food manufacturing, food operations, production, just really sales, everything related to how do you get a product from wheat on the field all the way to uh, some consumer packaged goods uh, in your pantry. And I grew up in that. I started with General Mills and then I moved to Procter & Gamble learned a lot about consumer goods and how to market and brand them appropriately and how to understand what the consumers want and give that to them and, and sell a product. And eventually within P&G, because the P&G brands are usually, are in many occasions, really large billion dollar brands, I was managing a smaller brand and it felt like our own little company, like our own little startup within this beast of a, of a company. And it was such an exciting and fun environment to be in where you could really innovate, where you could say, why do we do things this way? Let's try them this other way and have the leeway to do that. Where you can really motivate a small group of people to be on the same boat, excited about the underdog, excited about driving this product and brand forward. It was such a fun experience. And it was tough because underfunded brands, usually smaller brands are underfunded or not as, not funded as well as you would like. And it, so you had to make do and, and be very scrappy. There was so much value and excitement associated with being scrappy and getting your goals, even though you didn't have as much of a a budget to do so. Uh, I really love that. And in addition, over that time, I became plant-based. So I started eating uh, more plants and and became vegan eventually and wanted really to do something that was more within the entrepreneurial world, but also connected with my my principles and values. And uh, the co-founders of Trade Out Capital, Chuck and Jennifer, were looking for somebody to lead the firm and then we found each other and the rest is history. So very nonlinear path. And I think it goes to indicate that there really is no perfect way to end up um, A as a VC or B as an entrepreneur. You can get in touch with Lisa on LinkedIn or by visiting straydogcapital.com. Lisa, do you have any last insights for our listeners today? The only additional thing I would add is that the plant-based and clean meat market is poised to grow so fast so aggressively because everything is growing and rising based on consumer demand and changing consumer taste. And so getting involved in the in this field right now is, in my mind, a perfect moment and a perfect timing. As a matter of fact, I was speaking to somebody today who is interested in, in working on clean fashion. They said, am I too late? And I said, no, but if you wait, you will be. So if you have any thoughts and any desires to jump on board and start your own company or join one of the VCs working on this or start a virtual 
vertical within a foundation to invest in this or, or donate to this field, this is absolutely the time. This whole category as a whole needs to be successful in order for us to continue to live on Earth, honestly, to be able to feed as many humans as we're going to have. It's a mandate for us, for you and I, to do something about it immediately. We This is not something for our kids to solve or our grandkids to solve. Uh, they won't have an opportunity to do that if we don't really change the way we eat and, um, and stop the degradation that we have on the planet. So I would encourage and welcome anybody who's thinking about working in this direction to, to not wait and to jump on it. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. Thank you, Alex. This is a lot of fun. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode. <laughs>